Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 208. Today is October 16th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, here we are into the fourth quarter of 2016. The year is about over. It's just amazing how quickly time flies. The market is all befuddled right now. We're anxiously awaiting the results of the November presidential election, and we're in the midst of third quarter profits being released. Saudi Arabia and OPEC are threatening a cap on oil production. China's rate of growth continues to slow their currency devalues. The fallout from the Brexit vote is still uncertain at this point. All kinds of dilemmas, and despite it all, we have a stock market I guess the only way I can describe it is paradoxical. And here's here's why I use that term. Despite all the uncertainty in the markets that we've had, particularly over these last, say, six, seven months, the continued global slowdown to the huge fluctuations in the price of oil, and then the ever-present, uh, you know, hypes of the day threat, things like the Zika virus, you know, spreading throughout Florida, uh, the drama of the presidential election, all this stuff going on. And in one respect, things couldn't be better. The market is really, you know, not too far off of record all-time highs. We're basically at a market top. And at the same time, the market is in a long consolidation process, which I think that arguably we can say has lasted for at least 24 months now. And that means that the market's just going sideways. It's trading in a range. And so consequently, it's not delivering any type of uh, what I would consider worthwhile risk-adjusted returns. So on that paradoxical side, yes, we're basically right around all-time record highs. And at the same point, if you've been sitting in the S&P 500 for the last 24 months, you've barely made 3% a year for the last two years. Now that's a total return. That's including dividends. So that's what I want to talk about in today's episode. It's this consolidation that we're in, this trading range, and, and it isn't something that's just occurring over you know, the past weeks or days. This is long-term. That's what I want to talk to you about. We'll talk about or revisit what we've talked about in the past, that of alpha, which is a risk-adjusted rate of return. Before we get to all that, there is one housekeeping item I want to mention. I was recently interviewed on the College Success Podcast. As the name implies, that's a podcast dedicated to college students, particularly those that are struggling with, you know, a variety of issues, as probably anybody that's ever been to college has gone through. I think it turned out to be a really good interview. The host of that podcast, his name is Derek. He's a listener of the Wellsteading podcast. He's a big fan of our show. He invited me to come on there, and we really just drilled down on the things that we talk about on this podcast, the, you know, Wellsteading, wealth-building principles. We drilled down on those and looked at them from the perspective of someone that's, you know, 18 to 25, someone that's in college, someone that's maybe struggling with career decisions, uh, student loan debt, things like that. We didn't get into the minutia of how to, uh, you know, use strategies to get out of debt or how to avoid college um, loan debt, any of, anything like that. It was just high-level wealth-building principles that can be applied uh, for younger people. So basic principles of how to create wealth, you know, creating products and services. The whole concept that wealth isn't an entitlement. It isn't something you get rich quick with. It occurs over time. It occurs when you pursue your passions and the things that you're good at, and you can create valuable products and services that other people want to purchase from you. 
So if you're a younger person or you want to recommend that to someone that's in college, I'll have the link in today's show notes. Uh, For you old timers like myself, you might want to go back and listen to it as well. Again, Derek was a really good interviewer. And I think when you're discussing the concept of things like production is the source of wealth, those are things that, that are timeless and we can all go back and listen to. So check that out, the College Student Success Podcast. I'll have a link in today's show notes. Okay, so what about this market? Well, my claim is is that we are in a long consolidation. This is not just a consolidation period, but this is an actual consolidation trend. You've heard me over these past two years, you know, beating the, the bully pulpit here at the podcast, where I've been very, very cautious about being in this market. And arguably, in many cases, I've been way too cautious. And looking back with 2020 hindsight, I wished I would have jumped, um, you know, both feet into the market back around, uh, you know, February 11th, February 12th, when we hit the market bottom for this period. But unfortunately, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. I have been concerned for the last two years, not about an economic collapse, not about a zombie apocalypse, not about peak this or peak that. That's not who I am. That's not what I worry about. That is not how I've built my wealth over the last 30 years. What always worries me and what I try and avoid is a catastrophic loss. And what I mean by that is what happened with the dot-com bubble in 2000, with the housing and financial crisis in 2008, and then also events that are not quite as drastic as that. But any time that the stock market drops you know, 25, 30, up to 40 or 50%. We've seen those things happen. They are not economic Armageddon. They're not chicken little end of the world. The market does recover. So again, I'm not a gloom and doomer that that I'm worried about apocalyptic um, end times things. That's not what happens in our economy. But there are significant pullbacks when you can have a catastrophic loss. Now, if you're 20 years old and you only have $1,000 in the market, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. As I always talk about, you're not even an investor at that point. You're simply someone that's saving. And so if you lost 50% of $1,000 and you're 20 years old, it's no big deal. But guess what? Myself and clients that I represent, we're not 20-year-olds with $1,000 in the stock market. We're people generally that are in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, and we have anywhere from you know several hundred thousand dollars to several million dollars in the stock market. If we lost 40 or 50 percent of it, even though I believe it will come back and that it's not Armageddon, that's still a catastrophic loss, and that's a hard thing to overcome. And so I prefer to avoid those kind of periods. Now, again, I'm not clairvoyant. I'm not some supposed guru that knows exactly what the stock market's going to do. Uh, Incidentally, no one else is that way either. No one else has those capabilities. Just go back and look at history. Look today at how hedge funds are performing. If you're watching that industry, you've seen that they are drastically underperforming the market right now. It doesn't mean that they're bad guys. It doesn't mean that they're incompetent. It just means that no one knows exactly where the market is headed. For all the success that Warren Buffett has had over the years, if you look at his individually traded public stock market type portfolio, what would be available to the individual investor, not companies where he's gone in and, and bought them all out and taken them private, but his just regular public trades that anybody can do. I think um, last time I saw that, you know, his long-term average there is only something like 6%. That's not a bad rate of return, though. 
not over a long period of time. And if you have a significant enough nest egg saved up, as Warren Buffett does, 6% on a year-in, year-end-out basis is a lot of money, and it's the way you build your wealth over time. Well, here I am digressing, but what I'm trying to illustrate here is that I've been cautious over the last two years, but I'm not chicken little. I'm not worried about the world falling apart. I'm just trying to protect my net worth, a significant portion of it that is available to be invested in the stock market. I don't want to lose 30, 40, 50% of that in something that's avoidable. And I say avoidable because if you remember back to, oh, I think it was Black Monday in uh, October of 19, maybe 87, the market just crashed 25% in one day. You can't avoid that. No one's that clairvoyant. I mean, if you're in a market like that and it falls apart, you can't get out of it. And for all the people that think that, uh, you know, they can use things like stop losses to to get out of a, a, a falling market in a short period of time, a flash crash, that simply isn't true. I have a blog post about that that I wrote last, um, probably the the middle to the end of um, August of last year when we, we saw the flash crash of last year on August 24th, uh, where I talk about the things like stop losses they work when the market's working, but on a day or a week when the market's falling apart, the flash crashes actually occur because stop losses are triggering them. And so if you have a stop loss on a day when the market is plunging, you're likely to get a much worse price for your trade than had you just ridden it out for a day or two. So sometimes 25% crashes are unavoidable like happened on Black Monday in you know 1987. But at other times, the market telegraphs that there is uncertainty and there are problems. That's what happened as we went into the dot-com bubble. That's what happened when we went into the financial crisis in 2008. You could tell that the market was overheated. I've been concerned about this particular market being overheated for the last two years. Now, that doesn't mean that I haven't made trades. That doesn't mean that I haven't made money. It just means that I've been really cautious, and earlier this year, I was extremely way too cautious. But at the same time, I'll reiterate today what I've been saying for the last two years, and that that is that this market is not producing what I would consider a viable risk-adjusted rate of return. That's something that um, is more or less we can describe as alpha. You know, there's a website out there called Seeking Alpha. Alpha is getting a reward that's sufficient enough to make up for the risk that you're taking. I've used the analogy before about Russian roulette. Imagine that you're in a casino and you're betting on a roulette wheel. And so let's make this game really extreme. Let's say that your rate of return is that you have an 80% chance of winning. It only costs you a dollar to get in the game. And if you win, you're going to win a million dollars. Well, would you risk a dollar with only a 20% chance of losing for the opportunity to have an 80% chance of winning a million dollars. Well, I would. I'd take that bet all day long. Let's take that same concept, move it from the casino roulette wheel, and move it into the game of Russian roulette. That's where I hand you my stub-nosed revolver. The cylinder has four empty chambers, but one of those chambers is loaded up with a 357 Magnum round. We spin that cylinder around, you put the gun to your head, pull the trigger and squeeze, you have an 80% chance of winning a million dollars. Would you still take that bet? You probably wouldn't, I never would, because you have a 20% chance of losing your life. So in that case, the alpha is not worth the risk. It's a very poor alpha. 
I don't want to earn a million dollars, no matter how great the odds are, if I have a chance of losing my life. Now, the economy that we've been in the last two years, I don't think it's as drastic as Russian roulette. As I say, I'm not worried about an economic collapse. I'm not worried about peak anything. What I am worried about, though, is the market stumbling, a major slowdown in China, which precipitates not only the collapse in commodities that we've seen for the last three or four years, but it goes beyond that and it kicks off a world recession or the wrong politician getting in office and um, the concerns about globalism and populism degrading things like global trade where, where we get the governments of the world battling each other and the old uh, Smoot-Hawley tariff type things that uh, you know predated the last Great Recession where we have all these restrictions on world trade. That's a real and present danger. There could be a breakdown of the European Union because of all the problems that we're seeing in the southern economies, the instability of their banks, the instability of their their general economies, you know, countries like Italy, Portugal, Spain. They don't have sustainable economies under the current European Union system, under that common currency. I don't see how that European Union long term is going to work out. Those are things that precipitate things like bank runs and defaults in Greece or defaults in Italy, Um, even very strong countries in Europe like Germany. You know, Germany itself is not a troubled economy, but you look at Deutsche Bank, the largest bank in Germany, the largest bank in, I believe, in Europe, they have major derivative problems right now. That's not going to be easily solved. That could kick off a major financial crisis if Deutsche Bank somehow falters or looks like they're going to default. All the problems we've discussed with the huge amount of leverage that has gone into building the shale oil infrastructure, that if that debt gets defaulted on, that could create a crisis in the U.S. banking system. These things just go on and on. The overall uh, general slowdown in the global economy has put a lot of uh, leveraged debt out there. Places like Brazil, places like Indonesia that have a a lot of debt, and these are commodity-based countries, and, and not even just Brazil, but you look at Canada, you look at Mexico, you look at Russia. These economies are predominantly based on commodity exports. Commodity prices have been in a death spiral for you know, four or five years now. All these problems are contributing to the ending of the current business cycle we're in. Now, when business cycles end, it it doesn't mean that it's a catastrophe. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a catastrophic loss. It doesn't mean that the economy um, is going to go into recession or that the stock market is going to drop 30%. The economy could putter along for a little bit. It could go through a consolidation period, and that's a key word that I want to talk about in today's episode that we're emphasizing, a consolidation period. That occurs when, just as the name implies, things consolidate. They come together. They pull back a little bit. You think about molecules of water when they condense and, and consolidate around a, a cold glass. If you're looking at a glass window and it's cold on the outside of your house and warm and you're in, inside of your house, and you blow your breath on the window, a little fog will occur, right? The, the water molecules in your breath will condense and consolidate on that cold glass window. If you have a, a cold beer or a cold soda in your hand, the moisture from the atmosphere will consolidate and condense and form water droplets on the outside of your beer can or on the outside of your Coke can. Well, that's what markets do when you come to the end of a a business cycle or when you uh, intra-period within a business cycle where the growth spurt has slowed down. 
and so things consolidate. This is when the economy and growth slows down. It doesn't necessarily contract. It could contract, but in oftentimes it doesn't contract. It just slows down. The rate of growth slows. That's what we're seeing in China. We're just seeing it in a very big way because the Chinese economy has been you know, supersized over the last 20 years. China, if you go back to probably early 2000s to mid 2000s, China was growing it in some cases, 10, 12, 14%. Now, you can't grow at that rate continually year in and year out forever. You have to have a a period of consolidation, a period of slowdown. China is going through that right now. A lot of people are saying, well, China slowed down to 6 or 7%. The numbers I look at, the way I calculate it, I think China has slowed down to probably 4%, maybe even less. Now, a 4% growth rate is still very respectable, but it isn't enough to keep commodity prices at all-time record highs like they had been when China was growing at 10 or 12 or 14%. So again, that gets back to my overall thesis of, no, I don't think we're going to hit an economic collapse or calamity, uh, any type of Armageddon, because it isn't that growth has slowed down to you know, below zero. It's just that growth has slowed. And right now, there are no catalysts on the horizon that look like we're going to get a huge bump in the economy. There's nothing out there that looks like production in China or production in Brazil or production in India. There's, no, there's nothing out there that looks like there's, there's going to be a big, um, huge impulse of growth coming out of those economies. What's going to spur it? Well, all the low interest rates haven't done it. The negative interest rates haven't done it. The literally trillions and trillions of dollars that have been spent not only in government deficit spending, but also in central banks taking on trillions of dollars onto their balance sheet, that hasn't spurred growth. Our economy right now, and I don't make a big deal out of this anymore. I used to always put out blog posts talking about, well, global growth and U.S. growth will revise down again. We're not going to hit escape velocity. We're not going to hit the 3 or 4% growth targets that all the central banks have told us we're going to do. You know, early in the year, they start out saying we're going to hit these great growth rates. We're going to hit escape velocity, quantitative easing or bond buying or low interest rate policies. These are all going to spur the economy. And then when it doesn't happen, they go back and backtrack it. I used to make a big deal about that. I don't even bring that up anymore. I feel like a broken watch keep, you know, telling the same time over and over again. But, you know, that has happened again this year. We were supposed to hit 3% growth rates. Things were supposed to be so rosy. The Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates four times in 2016 to rein in the inflation that was supposed to be occurring. And yet here we are, fourth quarter 2016, we're about to close out the year and growth has been revised down to something like 1.8%. That's abysmal based on all the money that's been spent to stimulate the economy. On the other hand, it is not Armageddon. The world is not collapsing. The the sky is not falling. 1.8% growth is still better than no percent growth. All these things, though, add up to the dilemma that we're in. We're in this long-term consolidation period. Yes, in any given year, the market could go up 5 maybe 6%. I've been saying that for two years. 
At the, on the other side of the coin, though, we could easily see a 20 or 25% pullback, and that would not be extreme. That would put current valuations at about a reasonable historic level. And not only do we see this same problem in assets that are, that are in the stock market in the form of equities, you know, regular stock prices, but we see these same overpriced high valuations on the bond market, and that's why I've been avoiding bonds. I haven't purchased bonds for I don't know how long. You know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you might have seen me take a large percentage of my portfolio, maybe even all of my portfolio, and during periods of uncertainty like this, I would have thrown them into a TLT, the 20-year treasury bond fund that's listed as a TLT. I would have potentially moved my whole portfolio in there during periods of uncertainty. I haven't done that for the past couple years for the distinct reason that bonds are extremely overvalued as well. I think they're more overvalued than individual stocks. If interest rates go up, and I say if because I don't know, they might stay low for another 10 years. We have no way of knowing. They came down for about 30, 35 years. We've reached a point now where they're at either you know near zero in some countries, they're negative rates. You have to believe that at some point, again, they're going to consolidate at this low range, and then they're going to creep back up to what would be normal for a growing economy. That would be something uh, a 10-year bond should be trading somewhere in the range of 3 to 4% at a minimum in a healthy economy. Right now, the U.S. 10-year bond is trading for like 1.76%. So we're nowhere near a 3 or 4% rate of return which would be considered normal. And I don't use that word normal, meaning that it's just an arbitrary number that you know conventionally people have agreed on. That 10-year treasury is based on alpha. It's based on a risk-adjusted rate of return. You want to tie your money up for 10 years, well, then you want to receive a yield that's worthwhile. And so historically, when the economy is growing at a nominal rate of around 3%, which is what you need to, to uh, keep the economy up with the rate of, of growth of the population, well, that means that your 10-year treasury generally trades at that same nominal rate. Now, as I just mentioned, it's looking like uh, 2016 is going to come in at maybe uh, somewhere under 2% growth rate, about a 1.8% growth rate. Well, you're saying, well, hey, the treasury's at uh, 1.76%. That sounds pretty close to our growth rate. No, that that 1.8% that I'm talking about that the economists all quote, that growth rate is the real rate of return. That means you take out inflation. The 10-year treasury should mimic a nominal growth rate, which means it includes the inflation-adjusted number in it. And so our economy, it isn't growing at like 1.8%. When you factor in inflation, it's probably growing somewhere between 25 to 3%. And yet our 10-year treasury is only paying something in the range of 1.7. That indicates that there's a bubble in the bond market. So again, I come back to the fact that we're at the end of a business cycle. We're at the end of a bond cycle. We're at the end of a business cycle. We're at the end of a debt cycle. We're at the end of a super commodity cycle. I mean, this is, has been a really large convergence over the last two years of cycles that are coming to an end. 
Again, that doesn't mean that the world's falling apart. It just means that there's going to be a shift. Will oil prices stabilize around $50 a barrel? Or will they go back down to $30? Or will they move up to $100 a barrel? Well, things like that have a major, major impact on the petrodollar and on the growth of the global economy. That hasn't been resolved yet. The same can be said with the growth in China, which will have a direct impact on all other commodities, things like copper, things like iron ore, things like cement. The bottom line, again, is that the stock market, the bond markets, the commodities markets, even precious metals, you look at the price of gold, all these things have been in a consolidation period. They're not drastically moving up. They're not drastically moving down. Let me give you a specific result. For those of you that buy and hold, and you've been buying and holding the S&P 500, when you look at your account, you'll realize that you're not making very much money if any money at all, depending upon what kind of fees you're being charged. And that's, again, because for the last 24 months, we've been in a consolidation period where, yes, there's been wide swings in the market. It's gone up as high as, you know, 2190 on the S&P 500. It's gone down as low as like 1820. But it stays in this range where the overall market indexes are not producing much of a yield. And so if you go back and you look at the high in 2014, and I'm looking at the intraday high for the year of 2014, um, that occurred on December 29th, 2014. The value of the S&P 500 on that intraday high price was 2,093.55. So for our purposes, we're just going to call it 2,094. On this past Friday, that was October 14th, 2016. So not quite two years later, you know, not a full 24 months later, but a good 22 months later. And for our purposes, let's just call it two years later. Well, on that day, the market closed, the S&P 500 closed at 2133. And so back in 2014, the high was right around, we called it 20, uh, 2094. Two days ago, the market was at 2133. That's a nominal difference of less than 2%. So if you were in the market at the end of 2014 and you've held all this time, these past 24 months, you suffered through two double bottom um, corrections in the market where the market dropped more than 10%. You had that flash crash on August 24th. You had the lows that we had here recently in January, February, February, the beginning of this year. You suffered through all those downturns your reward for all that was a nominal rate of return of, let's call it 2%. Now, if you want to get into the total rate of return, you can just call it another 2% each year for dividends. So you had a 2% nominal rate in the market. That'd be your capital gains. 2% each year of dividends. That would be another total 4%. Well, you divide that out by the two years that have passed. That means that you're lucky to have gotten a 3% rate of return. That 3% rate of return then has to be adjusted for inflation. Let's say inflation's roughly 1.5%, 1.8%. That means that your real rate of return, your total real rate of return of buying and holding in the stock market for the last two years is only averaging you know, something in the range of 1.5%. That's why you're not making any money. If you're cautious like me, you're also, you know, barely treading water because you're avoiding some of these large downturns. You haven't bought in because you're concerned that we're not going to see just a 10% correction in the market, but we're going to see a 25 or 30% full-blown bear market correction. Not the sky falling, not chicken little, not economic Armageddon, just a good old-fashioned bear market. 
Well, the bear markets haven't materialized. The bull markets haven't materialized. What we're in is a continued consolidation trend. The bad news is I don't see anything that's necessarily going to change that hugely in any big direction as we go into 2017. I think 2017 is just going to be like what we saw in 2015 and 2016, and that's where the market has a possibility to go up 5 or 6%. But unless things change, we also are at the end of all these cycles and we have a possibility to have a, a really good, solid 20, 25, 30% bear market correction. So that gets back into alpha. Are you willing to put all your money at risk to get a 5 or a 6% maybe rate of return when at the same time you could be losing 20, 30% of your money? And if things just carry out like they have been for the last two years, well, nominally, you're going to get maybe a 3% rate of return for the year. If you factor out inflation, you're going to be well under a 2% real rate of return. Is that worth the risk? Is that a significant enough alpha for you to be involved 100% in this stock market? For me, it's not. And remember, the purpose of the Wellsteading Podcast is never to offer you advice to tell you what you should be buying or selling. It's simply a place where I can tell you not only my opinions about the market, but also my positions. I tell you what I'm doing. You choose to do whatever you want. I want to teach you critical thinking skills. I want you to draw your own conclusions. And so as we go into the fourth quarter of 2016, I have been pretty much 80% in cash all year. That bode me well when we had the big downturn at the beginning of the year. It wasn't so good for me when the market recovered. But here we are at the end of the year and the market's about flat. And so from an alpha risk-adjusted rate of return, I feel comfortable where I'm at being about 20% in the market. I know I can lose some money, but I'm not going to lose a substantial amount of money. If the market goes up, I realize I'll miss out on the uptrend, but I won't be risking my principal for such a meager return. That's all the bad news. The good news is, is that we are seeing that this consolidation period, just like any trend, it's coming to a point where we're looking like we may have some resolution on some particular areas. The petrodollar may be stabilizing. And that's going to have a huge impact on global trade. I'm watching that very closely. We're seeing a lack of enthusiasm in the low interest rates and on the central bank easing policies. I think that's a good thing. I think rates need to stabilize. I think they need to go back up to a more normal rate of return uh, that would be in line with nominal GDP growth rate. So that's a positive. I'm watching that very closely. I'm watching commodities like copper and agricultural products, the, the, the ag commodities. Those things all seem to have not necessarily reached a bottom, but are stabilizing and the trajectories are flattening out. Those are, again, all good signs. My personal bias, my prejudice, my, um, I guess, wishful thinking is that we will have a pullback of 15, 20, 25%. That will be what we will need to put fear back into people to take some complacency out of the market for people to realize that those have, that have been chasing yields by simply buying very good quality, you know, high blue chip, uh, high dividend paying stocks, people have been rushing into those for the last 18 months. They've pushed the yield on those stocks up well, well above historical levels. You know, 22 times earnings, things of that rate, that just does not make sense. That's 
That's bond bubble material. That's housing bubble. That's internet bubble type levels. I think they need to come back down to more reasonable valuations. I just don't know when it'll occur. Remember when Alan Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance in the dot-com bubble? Well, you know, it was another, I don't know, 18 months, two years before the bubble actually burst. And the market had gone up another, you know, I don't know, 200% or something in that time frame. So we don't know when these bubbles will burst, but we do know that when they get way out of line with what's rational, they eventually do have regression to the mean. So my bias is to look for that 15, 20, 25% correction and not see that as economic Armageddon. That to me would be the perfect time to buy in and to ride this market onto all-time new highs that will hit again some point at 2017, 2018, 2020, whenever. Whenever those things occur in the future, we don't know, but if we can get a good buying opportunity, that would be the time to buy them. Now, will I wait for a 25% correction? No, because it may never come. But I'm going to be very judicious as I jump in and I will only come in when I see not only macro trends, but also technical levels in the stock market looking like they've stabilized and, and, and myself believing that the alpha is worth getting back in. If you look at the S&P 500 from a, a long technical basis, if you go out over the last 20, 30 years and you follow that three-year trend line, normally you don't hear me talk about three-year trend lines. You hear me talk about 50-day moving averages, 100-day moving averages, 200-day moving averages. That's what I think is normally most relevant. But on a long-term basis, the three-year trend line is also something that is very deterministic. It's something that, that has a, um, a very high rate of correlation. And if you look at that trend line, it looks like it might be topping out. That was really my one of my major concerns last year, particularly last summer. We were on the verge of breaking through that trend line. That was my concern again at the beginning of this year in January, February, when we saw that double bottom. I continue to watch that trend line very closely. After the Brexit vote, it looked like we were going to dip down and hit that three-year trend line. We did not, but that trend line is flattening out. It looks like it's topping out. What I think is very interesting, particularly right now as we go into the fourth quarter of 2016, is that that three-year trend line is sitting right at that very much emotional, psychological level of 2,000 on the S&P 500. Whenever you have a round number like that, it, it becomes a very impactful psychological barrier, shall we call it. That can act as both support and resistance. So if we do have any type of a pullback, I would think that it's very likely that the market, based on its resilience, that it would bounce off of that 2,000. The threat would be if it doesn't, if it falls below 2,000. That's about 6% from where we are right now. Given the volatility of this market, it, it would be easy for us to you know, drop 6% in any given week. A drop to the 2000 level would also put us roughly uh, about 9% over the overall high that we hit earlier this year. So again, that would be about a 10% correction based on the resilience that we've seen in this market. It usually doesn't go down much more than 10%. So keep your eye on that 2000 level on the S&P 500. 
As far as the short term, I don't know if the market is going to break out and rise up above this consolidation period it's in or whether it's going to break down below that 2000 uh, critical level in the S&P 500 or whether this consolidation trend is just going to keep meandering along. Remember, in the stock market, there's only three outcomes. The price can go up, it can go down, or it can remain the same. We're in a market for a long time where it's pretty much just remaining the same. No one, absolutely no one, can accurately predict the outcome. The best we can do is assess the probabilities and then mitigate for risk. That's what I do every day with my money. I'd encourage you to do it with yours. So, hey, until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.